So Bob got some emails. Let's read them and answer them. What do you say? Yes. <laughs> patron, patron Orla from Ireland says, how do you deal with the emotional aspect of contracting COVID twice when you are fully vaccinated? I am 38 weeks pregnant and I got COVID for the second time in my pregnancy. I've worked hard for so long following government advice and all the other things. So I was very disappointed to have gotten it twice. Bob, what do you think? I am so sorry. Ugh, that's it. I hope you and your kid are okay. I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about immune and that you know, like I don't know any the technical stuff about that. I just feel sad for you. That sucks. Yeah, the emotional aspect is rough. On one hand, we have a lot of reasons to be scared, to be frustrated with society yeah. to be worried about the future um, to be concerned with passing on the virus to someone else and uh, so but from the beginning what I've been saying is and this is a model for anxiety in a lot of situations if not every situation is that anxiety and you know the emotional reaction is helpful. You know, when a tiger is chasing us, we have fear and we run at fight or flight reaction. It saves our lives. When our loved one is in danger and we feel fear for them and we try to help them, our emotional response is helpful. So when you contract COVID and you have an emotional reaction, it's a helpful emotion. It's trying to it's trying to emotions are when I figured this out and I'm sure I was told a, a thousand times, but it really just didn't really click with me until the past few years. Emotions are motivators. Their uh, emotions are responses to interpretations of what's happening. So something's happening, we interpret it and then our emotion kicks in to motivate us to solve a problem emotions are problem solving motivators and when you have covid and you're uh, angry about it what is your emotion trying to tell you if you're scared about it what is your emotional trying to what's your emotion trying to tell you if you're scared in all likelihood your uh, fear is trying to motivate you to to do everything you can to be safe and so listen to that emotion and do what needs to be done to be safe. If you've done everything that you can do within reason to be safe and you still feel fear, again, reevaluate that. Maybe you're afraid of something else, like the fact that you haven't, you don't have a will, or you're worried about the care of your child. Maybe there's some things you need to uh, take care of. So allow the motivation to happen and to take those actions. Then once you've done all the actions that you can do that your, that your emotions are trying to tell you and you have any more anxiety, that's the extra anxiety that is no longer useful. And then you want to try to mitigate it as best you can. You want to remind yourself, hey, self, I've done everything I can. I, th there's no more reason for me to feel afraid anymore. I'm not going to uh, ruminate on this anymore because I've done everything. I've evaluated what this emotion is telling me. I've taken the actions. I've crossed everything off my list. 
this is all extra emotions, no longer helpful. And doesn't mean it takes the anxiety away, but it does contextualize it. It's like, okay, I hear you emotion. I got it. <laughs> I took your advice. I took the action enough already because now you're actually ruining my sleep, which actually harms my ability to recover from this and, you know, back off. Uh, so that's uh, my general model of dealing with anxiety or any emotion, in any situation. Because what a lot of people do is they just sit there and they're like, I'm afraid. How do I cope? Quote, you know, quote, unquote, but really, really saying, how do I get rid of the, how do I get, how do I get rid of the fear when your fear is, is there for a reason and you want to listen to it. And if you take action and, and there's a good chance that your fear will go away because your fear is like, okay, good. You, you did everything. And, and, and another part of it, getting back to what I was saying before is um, it might even be an existential fear of death. And this fear might be motivating you to wrestle with the meaning of that and the reality of that. Cause if you never actually uh, wrestle with the meaning of your death and your uh, transience na nature on this, in this universe, then you'll continually be reminded of your inevitable demise and have fear. And then you go into denial and you submerge the fear and submerge the reality. And, but that anxiety is just chugging along inside of you. And so sometimes you have to, and COVID really makes all of us face that. And all of us realize we're all going to die one day. And what does that mean? And have I rest, have I reckoned with that? And if and what do I need to do to reckon with that? Have I familiarized myself with that reality? Have I have I done all the things that I need to do so that if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, although I'd be sad, I, at least I didn't waste my time on this planet and, and in my relationships. You know, these are important things to wrestle with, and they're not small things. You know, they're big things. Something I've been wrestling with since I was a teenager. Uh, almost on a daily basis, not so much recently, because I feel like I it took me 30 years to wrestle sufficiently, at, at least this phase. But it's complicated, and that's my answer to that question. Bob, do you wrestle with your demise? Since I was 38, I have been afraid of dying. I'm 54 now. And there's times when I feel... Mm, terrified of that. And then there's times when I feel like Colleen and me was talking about that this morning. Um, you know, at some point we're going to be saying goodbye to one another. Uh, who knows who's going first? Though I did make a deal with her. I'm going first. She doesn't like that deal, but I think that's the right deal. Um, anyways, um, I said to her, well, we ain't dead yet. And we got now and today's a good day. It's Monday. So, you know, we get to make the most of our time together today, which felt really good. I don't usually feel good when I think about stuff like that, but it felt really good to think about making the most of my time with Colleen right now. Hmm. Why did you start wrestling with it at 38? Oh, I think it became apparent to me that I wasn't immortal. You know, I heard this thing when I was in college. I said, well, adolescents, they thrive on a sense of immortality. And I've noticed that sometime in my 30s, it became apparent to me that I was going to die. And, 
you know, not like I didn't know it, but like the emotional impact of it um, started landing. And somehow when I was 38, it was more intense than previous where I just recognized there is, it's all temporary. And at some point I will cease to be. The thing that makes me the most sad about it is all the experience gathered inside my body, inside my brain will be lost. Yeah. That makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah. Like it took a long time to learn how to do therapy, like how to be a therapist took a long time to learn how to do that. I'll be sad when it, if I lose that, right. I'll be sad to, for that to have. Yeah. As the world will as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know why I've always thought about it, but have since I was a teen and thought about it a lot. Did it scare you when you was little? No, it's never, you know, people always say, oh, you know, Kirk has this fear of death. I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of not existing. I'm afraid of not being. I'm afraid of, um, and I'm not afraid so much as extremely uh I'm disappointed yeah. that that's how the universe works. Yeah. You know, maybe there's an afterlife. I, I suppose maybe. there's a chance, but if there isn't, then what a, what a terrible curse we have as a species that we're aware of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, cause I look at my dogs and I'm pretty sure they're not aware of it. You know, people could argue that maybe they are, but I don't know. They have a hard time understanding some pretty basic things. I, I, it's, I imagine they don't understand, or at least they don't understand it at a, at a level we do. And I just, uh, I envy their ignorance. <laughs> yeah, you know, It's like they can live in the moment and not have to contemplate that. As time went on, I learned kind of in the last five to 10 years to have some peace with it. Um, I'd say 90% peace with it. it. But every once in a while, especially late at night, it'll just mm-hmm. occur to me, oh my God, one day I'm just going to be gone. Yeah, I'm just going to be completely non-existent mm-hmm. and I'll never be able to see or hear or touch or think or be again. And everything I am and everything I was and everything I will be will just be erased. And then a generation later, no one will even remember me and any exist, any evidence of me will just be completely gone or buried underneath a, you know, a mountain of data on on the internet. And Mm. uh, it's just, it's like, I never was, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's disappointing. Mm -hmm. why does it have to be that way? Mm. And another disappointing aspect of it is there's a chance in 500 years, people will never die because we'll have the technology to keep us alive and keep us actually comfortable. Mm. Not, not some sort of zombie apocalypse, but some, mm. some way of actually biologically keeping us. Cause there's a lot of uh, things pointing at, there's no reason why we have to die. Why are, telomeres have to fray why our uh, organs have to fail you know there's a lot of science saying like it's not inconceivable it's not like it's written in stone that all 
organisms must perish, uh, especially when you start thinking about interfaces with with computers and, and whatnot. And it's just ironic or in the Alanis Morissette sense that <laughs> in 500 years, uh, you know, we might be one of the last generations to actually die and we would have missed it after 200,000 years of humans existing on this planet. We just, we barely missed the, the beginning of immortality for humans. And who knows if that's true, but it, if that is true, it's, it does kind of suck. And there's actually a movie about it with Jared Leto, Leto where he's the last human to die on the planet. Uh It's kind of an interesting movie. Anyway, Uh, Anonymous annual patron, she says, can therapy sessions exceed one hour regularly? I'm noticing in my sessions that it takes almost the entire hour to become comfortable enough to start being vulnerable in any way. So we spend 40 minutes in uncomfortable silence or avoidant small talk until finally there's a little shift and we get about 15 minutes of real talk. This, is, this has been going on for over three years now, so it's not a matter of length of time in therapy. I don't want to go to therapy twice a week. If I was there for two back-to-back sessions, then maybe the first hour would continue to be getting comfortable, but I would still have the entire hour to get to the real issues. I heard that insurance can push back on this, and the therapist could get audited. Opinions, experience, or thoughts on longer sessions? Are they a possibility if you rely on insurance to cover the cost of therapy? Bob, what do you think? Um, yeah, you can ask. Um, I know somebody who has works at a tech company around here, and there's some modifier code that um, they wanted to have 90-minute sessions with me. And so they told me that you just put this modifier code on the bill, um, and they could submit that and get some coverage from their um, insurer. Yeah. So, but, but um, you know, there's some research on, as I understand it, but it's been a long time. There's some research on how people use therapy time. And if I remember right, what they said is people start making the most of it at about 40 minutes into a, you know, a 50 or 60 minute session. On average, of course. Yeah. On average. Yeah. Though I think it'd probably be a good idea for you to talk about the lag that you're experience that you're experiencing. I, I had a similar thought last week when I was in my own therapy session. And what I've come to believe is that it, it takes my brain a while to just settle in. I think I spend a lot of the week in a certain state of mind. And when I go into therapy and there's this focus, this particular focus, it takes me a, a while to shake it loose. So I sort of expect that that's just the case. So anyways, um, that's just my experience. I don't, I don't know. Um, anyways, so this possibility, if I remember right, the modifier code was 76. Yeah, I'm no expert, but there are new codes actually starting in 2020 that allow for sessions longer than an hour. And some insurance companies will pay more for those and some don't. So if you're a, you know, an anonymous patron, if you're, Going to your therapist and you're asking, and your therapist is open to doing two-hour sessions. There's a possibility that insurance won't even pay for it. Yeah. So it'd be, you know, that's not usually doable uh, for 
therapist. Essentially, they'd be offering a pro bono hour every week for you, which is hard, you know, because people need to pay their bills. But there's a possibility that with the new code, they would allow for that. But insurance companies are are pretty notorious for shaving costs wherever they can. And, yeah. and since it's not, since there isn't a big public outcry for this to be covered by insurance, mm-hmm. then I'm guessing that there's not going to be a lot of movement in that area. Mm-mm. So, you know, and then you, you bring up some other things, anonymous patron that I'm guessing your therapist might've told you of, you're saying, I heard that insurance can push back on this. And that issue is, it depends on the insurance, but usually insurance doesn't push back. They, they have much bigger fish to fry. I mean, insurance, me- medical insurance, they're paying like $100,000 for hospital stays. You know, they're, they're not super concerned with mental health coverage. So if uh, some uh, increase in your usage were to happen, it probably just wouldn't even show up. And it's just, it's not worth it for them to push back on that. So I can't imagine, I mean, some insurance companies like United or Cigna, they're really notoriously bad when it comes to this kind of pushback action. So I I don't know if that's what you're faced with, but there's that. And then you also mentioned, you know, your therapist could audit it. Well, you know, audits are the only reason why you'd be concerned about that is if you're actually not doing something correct or if you're actually fraudulent. So of course you don't want to go into that zone because uh, the way you could fraudulently bill for this is actually bill for two sessions and claim they were at different times, even in the same day when in reality it was just one long session and that would be fraud because you'd be lying and you'd be saying there were two sessions instead of one long session. So you don't, you don't want to do something like that. Um, but I, I've done this. I mean, how many times have you done this, Bob, where you've had longer than an hour session? Many times. Yeah. Yeah. Some couples used to like to come for 90 minutes. Yeah. Actually, traditionally couples was always 90 minutes. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, it was too much to cover in an hour. Yeah. And families as well. It was always at least 90 minutes. And back in the day with families in particular, they would be longer than an hour. Um, For individuals though? Occasionally, not often, but occasionally someone would want to have a longer session. Yeah. For this reason? Yeah. It takes them a while to loosen up. Loosen up or settle in or. Yeah. 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 I've done it. I could think of, maybe three times uh, and not because I'm against it so much that no one's really pushed for it aside from a few times. And I found that it, I don't know if it really helped that the, the, the things that they were trying to adjust for, I don't remember thinking, Whoa, this really opened things up. I don't really remember that. I will say that the general issue of, having it take time to get into the swing of things in session has been something that's happened a lot. And so what I have done over time, because I I don't know, I just figure let's try to make the hour work is I will talk with the client about it. And then I, cause I get concerned, you know, for the work that the client is doing. I'm like, we're, we're really scratching the surface for the first 40 minutes. Like one client, that I worked with for a long time, I told her that if we don't, if 
if I, as the therapist, don't end the small talk, we'll do that the whole session and you don't seem to complain about it. And I don't know if that's the best use of your time. Do you? And she was like, well, I guess not. And I said, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'll, we'll do our small talk for 25 minutes because my sessions, you know, a lot of people's sessions typically are 50 or 55 minutes. Then at that 25 minute mark, I'm just going to ask you, how are you feeling? And I'm not going to let you go back to small talk. And how does that feel to you? And she's like, yeah, that's probably best. And so she would sit down and she would just launch into, if anyone were watching, they would just think we were friends or colleagues and talking about just random things about her family or work or something. And then at 25 minutes, I would, I would stop, take a deep breath and say, how are you feeling? And she would just break down crying pretty much 95% of the time. And, and that's when the real work began. But if I didn't do anything, then it would, it would never happen. And she would never complain because of her relational traumas to put it in a short way. So there's a way to do it. And it's not without its anxiety for you, anonymous annual patron. If you implemented this with your therapist, it, it might be uncomfortable. You know, you're saying you spend 40 minutes in uncomfortable silence or avoidant small talk until finally there's a little shift. You know, there's a possibility that the little shift is only happening because you know that the session is almost over and there's less possibility of prolonged vulnerability. You know, this is what we call the doorknob. What do they call it? Doorknob revelation? Revelation, something like that. Because for a lot of clients, when their hand touches the doorknob as they're heading out of the office, that's when they actually reveal things that you were like, oh, we should have said that in the beginning of the session. Mm -hmm. Because vulnerability is hard and it's easier to avoid Mm -hmm. it, but there's a part of you that wants to reveal it. So uh, you could work with your therapist to say, okay, let's give us 20, 25 minutes of small talk, but then I need you as a therapist to push me to uh, deepen and to actually make this session useful. You know, another thing that I will do with clients is I'll stop and I'll say, so I just wanted to ask you, you know, what you wanted to get done today. Uh, I, I noticed you're talking a lot about your family or work and we can talk about that, but I, I just wanted to, wanted to check in with you and ask you like, is this how you wanted to spend your time? Because um, I want to make sure that you're getting the most out of therapy, you know, and this is also a tip for you therapists listening out there. You know, it's, it's easy, especially when you have 35 clients a week, sometimes you just want to kick back. And if the client's going to let you, then you just small talk your way through it. <laughs> and, um, and it was, you know, every time I shifted with clients like this, it was work. It takes emotional and sometimes kind of physical effort to, to, push past, kind of interrupt the client to open our, both of ourselves up to some complications. So uh, that's what, I, do you ever do that with clients, Bob, where you have to say, Hey, should we shift this to be deeper? It's initiated by you and not the client. Constantly because people or I should, I don't know about people. I'm thinking of a couple of people that I'm seeing right now who um, can be very topic focused and I just am relentlessly bringing it back to what's happening between us right now. 
what is it wanted? Because there's always something wanted that's implicitly spoke. Uh, implicitly, it's 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 in the room. It's unspoken. So learning about what that is, because I want is a really vulnerable thing. So if I find myself engaged in small talk, say, then I get to highlight that. Or if I find myself engaged in a topic, I get to highlight that, like, and ask what's wanted out of, you know, this, this thing that you're describing right now, can you pay attention to what it is that you want? And how is this feeling as you tell me? A lot of the times I think it's anxious and avoidance. Um, but, you know, I think relationally all the time nowadays, and I'm thinking of somebody in particular, and when they come in, they talk about their primary relationship, and they are sort of focused on kind of what's been happening or speaking about it in somewhat general sort of 10,000 foot terms. And I am constantly bringing it back to what's happening between you and me right now, as you describe all this, what is it? Not, not, not confrontive. I don't believe in confronting what's wanted though. Like you're important, you're important and how you feel and what you want is really important. So can we be clear about what it is that's wanted? I think for that person in particular, becoming clear and explicit about what they want out of our thing is likely to translate really well into them seeking, getting what they want out of their primary mm-hmm. relationship. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm relentlessly bringing the focus out of small talk. I don't, I don't do small talk. I'm constantly bringing it back out of what's going on right now. Oh yeah. Look, this is that thing that you do. Oh, are we engaged in small? Is that what you want to do? Right. Oh, okay. Cause if somebody said to me, yeah, Bob, that's what I want to do. I'd be like, okay, great. That's you asserting what you want. Great. Yeah. You're cognizant of what you're doing. You're not just mindlessly yeah. doing something that you're used to, or you feel like yeah. you're supposed to. It's the difference between process and topic content process. And I try to stay in the process. Do you remember, and maybe still, there's a fear there as a therapist. Oh yeah. You're, you're taking us, you're taking a step into the unknown. Oh, oh it's scary. Yeah. And you yeah. can see novice or unwise therapists avoiding that whole thing. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I what can. do you think it is that we're afraid of? I think we're afraid of intimacy. Why are we afraid of intimacy? I don't know. Um, we're seen, we're vulnerable. Like I honest God, Kirk, you know what? I, I try not to be a therapist. I try to just be a human. And uh, I can't tell you how many times in an average week I say, Oh God, I sound like a damn therapist. Let me try that again and try to be genuine. Now genuine doesn't mean I talk about me or I disclose a lot. And sometimes I do, but, but it's not about shifting focus. It's about being immediate. What's happening right now in my relationship with my person that I'm talking to right now, being open and vulnerable about that, learning about what's happening in the other, um, using my experience as a way to kind of get a sense of where's the other, um, you know, all that stuff that, that you get trained to do and you practice doing and you develop the capacity for. Do time. people get trained to do that? I don't know about, I, as time goes on, I don't know if it's trends or what, but I worry that a lot of therapists are not being trained to do what you're saying. Yeah. Well, even the, the thing is, is like, there's this push for, you know, like these evidence-based treatments, like cognitive behavioral therapy and that sort of thing. A good cognitive behavioral therapist is still process focused, is still paying attention to the experience of the client. 
they might not have that explicit in a manual, but I should hope that we would be paying attention to the person that we're in front of and not the strategy or the technique or the, you know, the goal or whatever, sort of like um, that old one about you, right? Yeah. You row your boat out and you rescue somebody out of the water and then you row your boat back in and you discover they're, they're not in your boat anymore. Yeah. You got to be with them where they are. So, so when you hear the phrase evidence-based practice for yourself and maybe what, what you think other people are referring to, yeah, do you, they're referring only to cognitive behavior therapy, do you think? I think, tip, you know, you said something about this a couple podcasts ago and it struck me because you were talking about there's evidence-based, there's evidence for relationally-based therapy. A lot of evidence. A lot of evidence. Including psychodynamic therapy. Yeah. Interpersonal. Right. Uh, there's evidence for humanistic therapy. In right. fact, when you look at the, the common factors of therapy that are that have strong em- uh, evidence, like empathy working, right. alliance working, these are all humanistic and psychodynamic yeah. ideas. They are not, not cognitive behavioral ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even specifically interpretation is an evidence-based practice that they found. They have mounds of evidence showing that interpreting people's personality and their situation and their relationships and their patterns has positive outcomes. And it really is a marketing coup that when people say evidence-based practice, they think cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's like, t- it's like tissue paper and Kleenex. When you think of tissue paper, especially not so much anymore, but when we were growing up, there was just one brand of tissue paper it was Kleenex. You know, there wasn't, you didn't have alternative brands of, of tissue paper or there was one brand of copy machine and it was a Xerox. The Xerox, right. To the point where when to, to, to copy something was to Xerox it. And uh, that's marketing. That's Madison Avenue trying to monopolize something. And cognitive behavioral therapy has has won the day <laughs> against all science. It is evidence-based for certain things. It works pretty well for certain limited things. It doesn't mm-hmm. work very well for some other things the way that mm-hmm. psychodynamic therapy does. Plus, when you understand, and you know, this is my soapbox, but when you understand how research on manualized treatments work, you understand that this sort of uh, field is hard to know anything about anything. Uh, so, you know, and as I always say, cognitive therapy, I use all the time. Behavioral therapy, I use all the time. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying... The fact that we have said evidence-based therapy equals cognitive behavioral therapy and nothing yeah. else is, right. and you know, for tissue paper, who cares? But this is human lives on the line. You know, people are coming into therapy, and they need tailored treatment to their problem. And if everyone is using one form of therapy for every single client that comes in the door without consideration of the client's needs, then people are being misserved and potentially even dying because of suicide because they're not getting the treatment they need is, is my thing. You know, it's not a small thing. And the, uh, also the problem is it'd be one thing if the public thought this, but this is within our field. You know, I, most of the public doesn't even understand there are evidence-based therapies. You know, mo- this is all just within academia and, and, and our professions. And, 
you'll hear professors say like, I use evidence-based therapy. And what they're saying is I use cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And they'll literally say there is no evidence for psychodynamic therapy. There's no evidence for Rogerian. There's no evidence for humanistic. It's all a bunch of old, outdated, unscientific crap. You know, people will say Freud is unscientific. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, Freud said a lot of things, <laughs> but there are many things that Freud talked about that absolutely does have science backing it up. So this idea of, of just this bifurcation and this discarding of all these things not only annoys me because... I love all theories and to dog on a theory that I like bothers me. But two, a lot of people are being mistreated and people will email in and say, yeah, I went to a therapist and I have all these relational traumas. And after listening to your podcast, I think I was on a spectrum of this personality disorder and my therapist doesn't even believe in personality disorders or attachment theory and just talked about skills the whole time and mm. wanted to do it in five sessions and said I was cured and I, I didn't feel cured at all. And it's um, a total disservice and it makes us look like idiots. You know, when people in their own field are claiming things, including professors, by the way, because, you know, these people aren't being, uh, they don't come to these conclusions on their own. Professors are telling them this because essentially we have professors that have political opinions about certain uh, theoretical orientations. You know, it's like Freud is, I don't know, just, sexist they have this extremely narrow vision of it the way that like a republican has a narrow vision of the lib and they just discard it completely and it's like where is your academic integrity where is your research integrity like you read you get out of your your little echo chamber and there's just mounds of evidence you know there are people you're not going to get any legitimate journal by saying such a stupid thing you know in legitimate journals they have there's plenty of research showing in, in, and lit reviews describing the evidence of humanistic and psychodynamic therapies as, as an umbrella term. And so it's really, um, I don't know, it's just another thing that I get in, in, embarrassed about, about our field. Because I, I feel like other fields, they don't have this. I feel like in other fields, in medicine, for example, I mean, there's certainly pseudoscience within medicine, but not as much. I just feel like it's hard to find anyone that really understands the landscape because it's blind leading the blind. I mean, how many professors understand the landscape? And, and it's not many, honestly, in my experience. And so, yeah, that's that rant. <laughs> that. All right, let's take a break and answer more emails. What do you say, Bob? Yes. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a new year, so of course it's time for New Year's resolutions. But often, those are just manifestations of internalized harmful voices, voices that tell us we're not good enough. So instead of making a resolution to change something, let's recognize that we are already good enough. Now, most people think of therapy as a place for us to work on our problems. But there are several schools of thought within the field of psychotherapy that adamantly reject that paradigm, like narrative therapy and solution-focused. Instead, these clinicians help us focus on what we're already doing well. And by helping us do that, data shows that we often will gravitate towards more beneficial patterns. Well, one place you can find such therapists is on BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving a try. 
So, celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Kirk today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kirk. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. All right, we're back from the break. I thought I'd do an OPP for patrons that have been patrons for a long time. We have these people became patrons in October of 2019, back before the pandemic. Wow. And have stayed patrons the whole time, Bob. We got Jane from Denmark. I'm not sure. DK. Do you think that's Denmark? I think that's Denmark. Let me let me make sure. DK country code. We have Denmark. We got Keith and Jamie and Hel- from God knows where. We have Helena from Czechoslovakia or Bern. Is that Czechoslovakia? I thought that's Austria, isn't it? Or Germany, Switzerland. It's Switzerland. Switzerland. Bern, right? Yeah, Bern. That's a, that's one of the major. We have Bernie from Seattle. So we have yeah. Helena from Bern, and we have Bernie from Seattle, who is an upper tier patron. We got Patrick, who's an upper tier patron from Alaska. Wow, right on. Wasilla, Alaska. Where is Wasilla, Alaska? Yeah, I got to look this up. We're having geography lesson. Yeah, Wasilla, Alaska is near Anchorage up into the mountains from Anchorage. So way the heck up there. Did you know I'm taking a, a, a little cruise boat up to Alaska? I did know that. With my family. When do you go? Uh, this summer. This summer, right yeah. on. And there's a lot of hiking into the, into the woods. Oh, and you'll appreciate this. So you and my wife both have tsunami phobias. Oh, yeah. And... So she is staying awake at night, worrying that we'll be on the coast or in the boat and a tsunami will kill us all. Uh, so I had, a, I had a talk with her about, cause I suffer from anxiety too, but I, because I'm a therapist have learned over 25 years to treat myself and my phobias, meaning that I don't necessarily not have anxiety cause I do, but at least I have some roadmap to, deal with it she has no roadmap you know it's just like it's real you know the the anxiety is real and everyone's an idiot for not recognizing it she's not interested in treating that as a phobia uh well she's married to a therapist so i'm 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 treating her and uh she's accepting it. <laughs> does she know <laughs> whether she wants it or not does she know she's being wow <laughs> no i i she's not a super She'd be one of the last people I would think would ever go to therapy. And she is open to me trying to help her. Mm -hmm. You know, she doesn't resent it or, you know, push back at all. But, um, and yeah, but once we're on the boat, I'm guessing she'll be okay. And nothing Mm -hmm. that a couple of Xanax can help. Caitlin from upper tier patron from Bellingham, hmm. Matthew from God knows where, Melissa from Las Vegas, Nicole from Seattle, 
Wow. Emily from Roy, Utah, and Kelsey from New Brighton, Minnesota. Hmm. New Brighton, Minnesota. Where's that? Kind of sounds like an exciting place. New, not it's not old Brighton. It's New Brighton. Oh, it's in Minneapolis. <laughs> it's just a neighborhood in is, is that right? New Brighton? It's cold there. Yeah. When I was in Minneapolis, I, I found it to be very reminiscent of Seattle, at least in the summer. Mm. Um, have you been? Only once and just passing through, and it was in April, but it was like below freezing. It was really cold. Yeah. Okay. Next email, anonymous listener says, I put off listening to your episode with Bob about crying together again recently mm. because my grandmother just passed away unexpectedly mm. and I was afraid to be triggered by it. Mm. But funnily enough, it's, al- it's almost like she is in that episode because in that episode, you talk about the movie Little Big Man. Oh, yeah. And the old native man in Little Big Man that you were talking about on the podcast was my grandmother's grandfather. Wow. Yeah. What's more is that my grandmother was actually brought my my was that my grandmother had actually brought her grandmother up a mountain to die when my grandmother was five, just like in the scene in Little Big Man. So just chiming in here, I don't remember that much from my childhood in the seventies, but one of the memories I have is watching Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman. It's a period piece from like the 1800s or early 1900s. And Dustin Hoffman, it's kind of like Forrest Gump in that the Dustin Hoffman character goes from rags to riches to rags. And, you know, he, he travels around it's, and experiences Native Americans and experiences white people. You know, there's just various different little, cav- little moments and scenes that he goes through. And, and one of the scenes that he goes through is there's this hero character, a, a, a wise old Native American man, uh, might have been a chief, I'm not sure. And he tells Dustin Hoffman, he's like, it's, you know, it's, it's my time to die. We must go to the sacred mountain and you must lay me down and there I will die. And so, and uh, Dustin Hoffman's character, you know, they trudge up the mountain and lays him down and, then uh, he closes his eyes and he's going to die. And it's this really moving moment. And Dustin Hoffman is standing there going, Oh my God, he's going to die. This is terrible. And then it starts to rain. And we see that the old man is flinching from the raindrops hitting his face. And you're like, Oh, he's not dead yet. Cause the whole setup is like, Oh, he's going to die. He's a wise old man. He knows he's going to die. And then he opens his eyes and he says something like, he just says something like, I guess today isn't the day I die. And then they go back down the mountain. And it just, I don't know, there's something about it that makes me want to cry right now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just something like so funny and touching. And mm-hmm. and I don't know if I mentioned this, but my Japanese, there wasn't much about Japanese Americans growing up. There, there were things about Native Americans. And whenever I would see Native American depictions, it really reminded me of my elderly Japanese American relatives. There's a certain cadence to the way Japanese people talk that's similar to Native American or the way Native Americans are depicted in movies. 
and there's a certain ethic uh, of life and the way they hold themselves with a certain, I don't know, demeanor. And this movie, and I would watch this movie with my family, particularly with my dad. My dad really loved this movie. And it was on, back in the day in the 70s, you didn't have VCR. You just had to wait for a movie to come on like one of the three channels, ABC, NBC, or CBS. And it must've been one of those movies that was in heavy rotation. It was the same thing with The Wizard of Oz. Like every year it would come on one time a year and everyone would plan for it. This weekend, it's going to be on TV and everyone would watch it. But um, so I was talking about the movie anyway. So Adonis Sister is saying my grandmother was his granddaughter. And so he's saying what's more is my grandmother had actually brought her grandmother up, not, you know, the, the wife, I guess, of him potentially up a mountain to die when my grandmother was five, just like in the scene, a little big man. She didn't witness the death, but helped her up the mountain, left her there, and went back home. The next morning, her dad came home, and they went up and found the grandma's body. So it was a thing that they, that they and not only a thing that they did back in the day of the time of this movie being set, but in recent history. You know? um, although I guess I don't know how old Alana, Alana's sister was. But. Right. But the next morning... Her dad, yeah. Uh, this would have been 1955, and Little Big Man is in 1970. So I wonder if this scene was suggested by Chief Dan George. Uh, that was the actor's name. Um, it, it is definitely my family's sense of humor to make light of a morbid cultural practice, LOL. <laughs> anyway, I hope this is interesting to Dr. Kirk. There's also a great video of Chief Dan George that is very powerful and important to indigenous people. It's called A Lament for Confederation. It is in reference to Canada's 50th anniversary. We're Canadian. Thanks for doing all that you do. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so that's interesting, right, Bob? It's nice. Yeah, I always love it when people email in stuff like that. Uh, anonymous separate to your patron, she says, I am studying to become a therapist, and I recently read that one educational institution requires further therapists to adhere to certain or future therapists to adhere to certain expectations for behavior and emotional regulation. So let me read that again. I'm studying to become a therapist. And I recently read that one educational institution, so it must be a university or something, requires future therapists to adhere to certain expectations for behavior and emotional regulation. I recently left a job in which my manager, a psychologist, sexually harassed another worker and me. They were callous towards me after a client threatened me, excluded me from socializing with other workers, and he expressed poor attitudes about clients, including fantasies of using violence against them. Uh, just chiming in here. That doesn't surprise me. Does that surprise you at all, Bob? It's horrifying. I don't know if it's surprising, but it sucks. It doesn't surprise me. Uh, to hear about someone working at a institution, a mental health institution, particularly someone in power, having fantasies of, you know, when you say, when you put it that way, you're just like, whoa, that sounds, but for a therapist in case consultation behind closed doors to say like, oh my God, this one client drives me crazy. I just want to strangle her or something. Oh, that's a little different, but I, that's, I, that's, that's not what I heard. Is, did I mishear? fantasies of using violence against them. I mean, I don't know. They didn't yeah, say right, what right. specifically that means, but I, I'm guessing that's what it meant. You know, I, who knows huh. if it's okay. actual, like I have active obsessive ruminative fantasies of 
harming my clients. I, I that would be. I imagine they would have given that detail anyway. Yeah. Uh, he expressed poor attitudes about clients. I've just chiming in. You know, I'm. I have found that to be extremely common among therapists who are yeah. stressed out about working. Yeah. At a high productivity, you know, agency without any right. kind of mentorship or help or anything. Yeah. And bad leadership, essentially. Um, you know, because for me, when I'm, whenever I'm in charge and I have the opportunity to push back on that, when I have subordinates saying uh, things like that about clients, I'll say, well, it sounds like countertransference. What's going on with you? Right. You know, like that's not going to fly. You're not going to dog on your clients. Like that's, you can't have uh, uh, one. It's not fair because your clients are coming to you. It's not like you're complaining about someone you met on the bus. It's, this is someone under your care. And, and, and it's not like you're a plumber. Like if you have a bad attitude about a client, you're going to uh, at the very least not help them and potentially harm them. So we, let's look at that. It's okay to have hatred towards a client, you know, Winnicott taught us that in 1949, but it's not something that I'm going to go along with as if that's normative talk among therapists to just talk crap about your, about your clients. No, you know, they come for us. And, you know, I always say, why do people come to us? Because they have problems. And if you're, if their problems, which you got trained to, and you chose, this was what you wanted to do. You know, it's not like plumbers go home and go, oh my God, everyone had problems with their pipes. I mean, it was just so stupid of them. It's like, well, that's your profession. That's why you, you know, we got into this profession because people have personality and psychological problems, which might include them being annoying to you. And so if you can't cope with it, then get out of the freaking business. Anyway, so Anonymous subject to your patient is talking about this bad boss. As I tried to speak up about this manager's behavior through appropriate channels, and by the way, she spelled behavior with a U, so this must be outside the US. Hmm. As I tried to speak up about this manager's behavior through appropriate channels, other managers who are also psychologists and social workers and HR retaliated against me, and I was ultimately pushed out with HR hmm. making a comment that I had been a problem from the start. I heard through my contacts that my former manager is still a manager there, and he was given the responsibility of hiring my replacement. I feel very angry with everyone who participated, and I want nothing to do with them. But as I am studying to enter their field, so it sounds like they're not a therapist, uh, you know, fully fledged yet. I'm worried that someday I will see them at a conference event or another workplace. I want to avoid them. Even if they try to talk to me, and I would consider quitting if I learned that they worked with me, but I am worried this will make me look like a bitch, quote unquote, mm. therefore giving the impression to others in the industry that I, that I do not meet the behavioral expectations for being a therapist. So just chiming in here, remember she said earlier yeah. that she read that they require future therapists to adhere to certain expectations for behavior and, and emotional regulation. Uh -huh. And so she's worried. It's like, well, if I bump into them and I have like a breakdown, am I going to be considered unethical or unfit or something? Well, if I just don't engage with them, does that right. mean I'm a bitch? Right. Yeah. Alternatively, I am worried I will cry from seeing them, which would give the impression I do not meet the expectations for emotional regulation. For me to meet the expectations for becoming a therapist, am I expected to be collegial towards these people and keep my emotions under wrap if I see them? Bob, what do you think? 
It'd be hard to imagine that there would be any real consequence to you, like professionally, if you choose not to socialize or engage with people you don't like. You don't have to like them. That that's not dysregulated. Um, that's just you, you know, not liking someone. <laughs> yeah, that's your preference. You don't like being around them. There's nothing unethical about that. There's nothing. Um, there's nothing wrong with um, disapproving of their uh, behavior. And also with having a bad taste in your mouth about the way you were treated. Sure. Uh, but I don't think that it's likely to um, result in any kind of, you know, complaint against you or, or um, um, it certainly won't mean that you aren't suited for work. If you cry. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it will. Um, so what do you mean? Well, you know, if I come across somebody and, and I've had this crappy history or whatever, yeah, I suppose tears is one thing that might happen. I might have tears. Right. But, but you know, like you're talking about like a conference. Yeah. You know, oh, I thought about- you meant it might happen. You might have a negative like career consequence if you. Oh, no, you might have tears. And if you do, it's a moment. And, you know, maybe you don't like it. You don't like um, being that exposed or whatever to people who, you know, feel vulnerable in front of, or, you know, who think they would like use your feelings against you or to hurt you or whatever. But um, you're not on this earth to um, please them. You're not on, and you don't really have to protect yourself from their opinion of you. It's, you know, maybe they don't like you either. It's, it's okay. Um, so uh, um, it just seems like um, you're scared. You're also new and you feel like more anxious about this than is likely to actually, um, uh, how am I going to say this? Your anxiety is probably disproportionate to your risk. Right. Have you ever heard such such a thing of future therapists adhering to certain expectations for emotion? I mean, behavior. Okay, sure. I mean, but emotional regulation I, I don't really know what that means. Yeah, I, neither do I. So, anonymous up to your patron. I don't know where you're at. You use yeah. a you in your behavior word, so I suspect you're not in the stage, which makes me think you're not a part of any or a professional organization that Bob and I are, you know, aware of specifically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's possible that if you're in the UK, that there's a different or Australia or Canada or something, there's a different set of ethical expectations, I, but I mm-hmm. highly doubt it. I'm very familiar with all the various professional expectations in the States and nothing of which you talk about would uh, raise one's risk of being harmed professionally. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I would look into anonymous secretary patron what exactly those requirements are because they're yeah. pretty, they're pretty specific. And I would also it, to ease your anxiety, ask uh, a lawyer who specializes in your profession and just run by that individual, what the likely scenarios are, you know, someone thinking you're a B word or you breaking down at a conference or you quitting a job because you don't want to see people that you don't like what the, possible repercussions of that were worst case scenario. I'm guessing the lawyer would know a lot more than we would. And I'm also guessing the lawyer would say there's, there's extremely no low risk to that. I will say though, that, you know, someone can complain with, about you about anything. So someone might've already complained about you. <laughs> they might've already sent a thing in and saying, 
this person is unfit for this reason. You know, it, there's no way to prevent a complaint happening. But the, at least in the states, the review boards of such complaints, there's a pretty high bar for any kind of action being taken. I mean, you'd be surprised what they do not act on. There are things where you oh, that therapist is busted and then nothing happens because it's just the culture of those kinds of review boards. And then even if they do respond, their sanction upon you is actually pretty light. I mean, in, in my experience, if there was a complaint, it, it, like uh, I've seen cases like this in the review board and, you know, for licensing, and there might be a situation where a therapist gets a complaint that they are doing something behaviorally that because usually what we're dealing with when we're dealing with complaints of therapists is they're either uh, uh, having sex with a client mm. and harming a client, mm. or they are fraudulent in some way around billing, or they are treatment-wise found to have harmed a client. Maybe there was a suicide or something. And those are obvious uh, you know, flashpoints for complaints to happen because you have someone who is who is aggrieved. When it comes to therapists complaining about other therapists, that doesn't happen very often. It's not often that a therapist will call the licensing board and complain about a colleague. You would have to, because when you're a client, say say you're a client, or say you're a, a mother and your daughter dies from suicide and your daughter was in therapy, you're upset naturally. And a percentage of those people will want to blame the therapist. Will say, "Hey, why? You know, my my daughter was in therapy. What happened there?" And so you're motivated to complain, and you're motivated to follow up with the complaint. If you are just a therapist observing a coworker who happens to, in your view, have some quirks behaviorally that are annoying to you as a coworker, and makes you even think that the therapist is a bad therapist. It's really rare that that person will call the licensing board. It's also really rare that the licensing board will hear that because they'll have to say, well, do you know of any clients who have been harmed? You are this person's colleague. Do you have any examples of an, you have suspicions of, a, of client harm happening? Do you have any evidence of such a, a claim? And it'd be really weird for a colleague to have strong evidence that you harmed a client. And uh, and even then, like I said, it would have to be obvious, obvious harm, like having sex with a client or a client dying. It's a, there's a really high bar for even, at least in my neck of the woods, for a licensing board to entertain such a complaint. So the, as Bob was saying, the worries that you have are, are in all likelihood overblown. The other thing I'll say is that Anonymous separate your patron, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know that I was fired from my first internship. And I write about this in my book in the first chapter. It's, it's the whole basis for why I wanted to become as good of a supervisor as I could to my supervisees is because my very first supervisor was completely abusive. Well, actually, he was technically my second supervisor. Right? My first supervisor I had for like two weeks and then he quit and he was great. And then I was given this other guy who would never supervise anyone before I found out later. And I would run into him in other, you know, cause Seattle's a small town and I would run into him 
In fact, we would share supervisees. I would have supervisees who would have him as a supervisor. Damn. And stuff like that. And so it was hard. You know, it was politically hard. It was emotionally hard. And I had emotional reactions um, to the point where uh, years later, I ran into him at a conference and confronted him. And I had zero worry <laughs> that I would you know, have a negative consequence to my career. You know, I had zero worry that if he complained about me and said, Oh, you know, Kirk has this bone to pick with me and he has a problem. Like knowing what I know about the licensing board and about consequences for such things, I, I I have zero worry. And so in my neck of the woods, anonymous of your patron, I had the exact same thing happen to me. And had the exact experience that you're worried about where I ran into him at a conference. I actually provoked a confrontation between me and him. (laughs) And I took all the risks that you're worried about. I might have even cried in the moment. And I have, so I have no worry about it, (laughs) you know? And honestly, if there were a consequence, I don't want to be in a profession that consequences being a human being. Yeah. That's what stands out to me is, it's almost as if the interpretation of this behavioral and emotional regulation stuff is robbing a person of their humanity. That's crazy. Right. You're a person. You're going to have a range of feelings and behaviors. Right. And that's not going to change just because what you choose to do for a living. And I would suspect that whatever educational institution you're referring to that requires future therapists to adhere to certain expectations for behavior and emotional regulation has a history of sexism and racism and oppression because that kind of language is the bullshit of the man. That kind of, I will judge your behavior and your emotional expressions. Like that is a massively sexist, paternalistic, nonsensical ridiculousness and I will not stand for it. (laughs) So let me know if you need me to strike back at this institution if they're being unfair because that sounds like that sounds like the 60s to me, which is just not okay. <sighs> Hot and bothered, Bob. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for that episode oh. of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.